Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is an RNZ podcast. Occasionally, while I'm researching black sheep, there are books I have to read that I really don't want to. Sometimes it's because they're a bit boring, but often it's because they're disturbing. The book I had to read for this episode is The Worst of the Lot. In fact, uh, let me pull up the page for this book on Amazon, and I'll read you some of the reviews. This book blows my mind, not in the philosophical epiphany sense, but more in the how-can-this-even-exist sense. There's another one. Sadistic, racist, sexist, classist, and more violent than any Tarantino movie. And finally, I don't think even Hitler could write a piece of work that exceeds the anti-Semitic views displayed in this text. (laughs) Um, That last reviewer gave it three stars, which is a bit weird. The book those reviewers are talking about is called Might Is Right. It was written more than 120 years ago, and its author is a New Zealander. He's had more influence on political currents of thought than any other New Zealander I can think of. It's unfortunate that those uh, political currents of thought, from my point of view, are repugnant. The name on the front of Might Is Right is Ragnar Redbeard. That's a fake name, but we don't actually know what the author's real name is. Though, during the time he spent in New Zealand, he was known as Arthur Desmond. I'm not certain that Arthur Desmond is his real given name. It probably isn't. And I haven't found any evidence for a birth in New Zealand under that name. He was, when he first appeared in the news in Hawke's Bay, an itinerant farm worker. That's historian and author Mark Darby, by the way. You might remember his voice from last season's episode on John Cullen, the dodgy police chief. Mark's had a fascination with Arthur Desmond for years, but he recently decided to write and publish a short book about him, Ragnar Redbeard, the Antipodean origins of radical fabulist Arthur Desmond. There are still many gaps in the story, many questions unanswered, and but why I decided to go ahead and publish the book at this point with those gaps left in because, I suppose, of the election of Donald Trump and the rise, the associated rise of the alt-right in America and in other Western countries. And the fact is, like it or not, that um, Might is Right and Desmond's work continues to be read, continues to influence spotty little shaven-headed skinheads to the present day. It's worth knowing where the book comes from, who wrote it, what sort of character he was, just how dishonest and immoral and rather ludicrous and pathetic a figure he actually was if you, if you dig down into it and get below the myths that he spun about himself. Arthur Desmond's origins are mysterious. We don't know where he was born, who his parents were. As Mark said, he seems to have started off as a wandering farm labourer. The first mention anyone's been able to find of him is when he pops up running to be the MP for Hawke's Bay in 1884. I have seen men living in a hut where no fire was allowed. 
going to bed on a wet, cold day to keep themselves warm. I have seen the wind and the rain coming in through the cracked roof and the winter storm whistling through the rafters as it does through the rigging of a ship. I have seen these men get up out of this refrigerating chamber with icicles hanging onto their whiskers. And I have known of the owners of these colonial farm workers gallivanting in some London ballroom upon the profits of these slaves' labour. That's from one of Desmond's election speeches. He was about 25 years old and he was running as a populist, a hero of the working class. He put a lot of energy into it. He split the vote the uh, the first time he stood um, and didn't win, but you know, did pretty well. And then the second time he did even better because he was all, you know, he, he was known. He certainly made a bit of a splash there. But uh, he also uh, acquired a bad reputation. Part of how Desmond earns that bad reputation, at least among the Pākehā community, is through his support of Māori, particularly his support of Te Kōti, a former guerrilla fighter from the New Zealand wars who'd once carried out a massacre in the Makaretu region near Gisborne. But that was a long time ago. Takuti had been officially pardoned by the government and become an enormously popular religious leader as the founder of the Ringatū Church. In 1889, Takuti planned a trip to Hawke's Bay. By that time, the Māori people in this community of Makaretu were staunch Ringatū. That is, they were followers of Takuti and they very much wished him to arrive in that area. But the Pākehā of Hawke's Bay were... Less keen. <laughs> they were outraged at the prospect that this man who had committed these awful crimes in the area was going to come back as a sort of, as a, some sort of admirable figure, as a religious leader. They were appalled at the idea and they formed a militia, an armed militia movement to repel him. Uh, they demanded that the government do something to stop him and eventually they were successful. He was arrested in Oportuki to the north of, of Gisborne and sent to Mount Eden Prison. He was entirely peaceful. He had broken no laws. On the face of it, it was a legal outrage that he was arrested and imprisoned for that. There was one Pākehā who stood in support of Te Kōti, Arthur Desmond. Here's a letter he wrote to a local newspaper. I have told the harebrained people of Poverty Bay that bloody vendettas and race hatreds should not be perpetuated by those who had the welfare of this colony at heart. Most, if not all, of the leading men of Poverty Bay are interested in acquiring native lands. And this district is notorious for the discreditable means employed by many Europeans to gain their ends. Takuti's war days are over and his beard is grey, but his brain is still active. And there is no man in New Zealand who is more of a match for the land speculators than the erstwhile outlaw. He spoke Māori, it seems, and he had affiliated himself to some extent with the Māori community in Makaretu, and he seemed to act as a kind of liaison, as an interpreter, as a kind of go-between. And so when there were these angry public meetings by the Pākehā community to say there's no way that Takori should ever be allowed to come anywhere near here, he would stand up in the midst of this crowd and say, I think he should. It was a very brave, more or less a foolhardy thing to do. And in fact, he was um, bodily thrown out of the meetings and even beaten up. Police had to intervene to stop him being badly beaten up. But uh, it didn't stop him from, uh, from taking this stance. So at this point in the story, you're probably wondering why we're calling Arthur Desmond a black sheep at all. He sounds more like a hero than a villain. A champion of the working man, someone who literally put his life on the line for the rights of Māori. But... There's a dark side too. 
clearly nobody uh, in the Pākehā community was impressed with his um, with his defence of Tukorti. But as well, and during one of these election campaigns, he ended up bankrupting his campaign manager and then denying responsibility for the poor guy's debts, which is a very uh, ungrateful and ungracious thing to do. You know, that this guy incurred bills on his behalf and then when he couldn't pay them and was in the bankruptcy court, Desmond said, look, this has nothing to do with me. If he got himself into debt, that's his problem. Uh, this is pretty lousy behaviour. And Desmond realised that he had no future with, as far as a political career went in that community. And while Desmond did support Te Korti, that support was more linked to Te Korti's violent past than his present-day position as a peaceful religious leader. He liked Te Korti's style. He admired the idea of a very strong and even ruthless leader who was prepared to go to any lengths, including uh, violence, extreme violence, to achieve his ends, who did not consult, who did not debate, who did not allow himself to be advised by his followers, who simply went out there and did it. And his whole career and all of his political writings are based on an exaltation and admiration for, um, for such, such individuals. In 1889, Desmond leaves Hawke's Bay. He spends some time working in the King Country, but doesn't stay there long. He ends up working as a gum digger in Northland. He tried to find work in Auckland, couldn't, and then had to move further north again and work up in the gum fields and the kauri uh, forests. Well, you know, he was always whinging about the fact that, uh, that his genius wasn't recognised, that he wasn't able to make a living as a writer. Many of us have made the same complaint. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, this is where it, up in Northam with the gum diggers seems to be where he really properly attaches himself to organised labour. How, how does that happen? It coincides with an upsurge in the labour movement in New Zealand. Gum diggers and and timber workers are being unionised for the first time. Labour representatives are being elected to parliament. Strikes are taking place. The labour movement is having its first real surge of power and possibility. Desmond loves this situation. It gives him lots of opportunities. He ends up being employed as a union organiser and eventually he does achieve his ambition of living and working in Auckland on pay as, as a full-time labour agitator, really. Desmond manages to convince the union movement to help fund a newspaper called The Tribune, which he writes and edits pretty much single-handed. It's standard populist talking points. He pledges to strike unsparingly at every foe who menaces the rights of the people. But some of the content is pretty distasteful to modernise. He... Uh aligned himself with racist ideas, and in particular with um, anti-Semitism, which unfortunately was quite acceptable and widespread within some left-wing circles in that time. Jewish people were seen as having the money, the wealth, the resources that the rest of us deserve to have, and therefore they were responsible for our deprivations. Desmond certainly encouraged that thinking. He often described his conservative political opponents as Jews, regardless of what their religious beliefs were, as an all-purpose insult, and it was a very effective one. Unfortunately for Desmond, while the union movement's happy to let a bit of anti-Semitism slide, there are some things they won't stand for. He forges a letter which defames a very senior politician, a man named Edwin Mitchelson, who promptly sues for libel, and Desmond's allies in the Labour movement begin to abandon him. They realise that this guy, for all his skills as an organiser and as a propagandist, is um, trouble. He's bad news. He, he's high risk. And one of the real sort of 
hammer blows is that some of his articles, or I think at least one of his articles, was proven to be plagiarised. Yeah, that's right. It's um, an essay that he wrote quite early in, in, in his time in Auckland called Christ as a Social Reformer. The early part of the essay, it seems that he plagiarised word for word from an obscure American publication and and eventually this catches up with him some years later. Papers that had previously been happy to accept contributions from him began to turn him down. And as well, he could no longer um, receive any kind of funding from the Labour movement, besides which he faced very serious legal problems from um, the guy he defamed and potentially from the real author of the essay that he plagiarised. So he was in trouble on numerous fronts and he just had to get out of town one step ahead of the law. It's not the end of the story for Desmond, though. He's only getting warmed up. The next stop is Sydney, Australia. Desmond settles in Castlereagh Street. Today it's right in the heart of the CBD, surrounded on all sides by high-rises. But in 1890, it was very much a working-class neighbourhood. And he falls in with an interesting group of people. It's a rambunctious, quite exciting uh, environment. You wouldn't really call them far left. They're a kind of mixture of sort of bohemian literary rebels, really. I imagine uh, you'd find this kind of community in Wellington, in some parts of Wellington still yeah, today. Yeah, you would, in uh, Arrow Street perhaps, or something <laughs> like that. Uh, the thing is, though, the people that he's associating with, some of them went on to become some of the biggest names in 20th century Australian politics. We're talking about... Billy Hughes, later Australian Premier. We're talking about Henry Lawson, hugely popular Bush poet in Australia. As young men, these were the guys that Desmond was associating with. It sort of seems like he gets this amazing second chance. You know, he had a chance to be one of the up-and-comers in the in the Labour movement of New Zealand. He gets a second chance in in Australia. He, you know, he's what you you point out. He's associating with two future Australian Prime Ministers and the future head of the New Zealand Labour Party while he's there. Harry Holland, he was also in that circle, came over to New Zealand and uh, rose to become uh, the president of the Labour Party here. And he was part of the group that Desmond was rubbing shoulders with, um, getting drunk with, uh, writing poems with in a left-wing bookshop in Sydney, yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, he he did so well within this um, community for a while that he was actually offered a safe Labour seat. He could have become a Labour MP. Didn't happen. Because he just can't throw this sort of incredibly awful writing away. No, and nor can he resist behaving in a um, impetuous, extreme, uh, self-destructive way. That self-destructive streak manifests itself in another newspaper Desmond writes called Hard Cash. In it, Desmond rails against the mainstream press, saying its role was to hold chloroform over the people's nostrils while alien usurers pick their pockets. He raved against the Christian church, saying that while hired clergymen hold forth in sanctimonious tones to congregations of the well-to-do, humanity is crushed and broken in the money changes, horrible, blood-dripping, accursed mills. But it backed up all this ranting and raving with some stone-cold facts. It was a little muckraking scandal sheet which provided tip-offs about businesses, banks, companies. So he would say, sell all your shares in this company, they're going to go up the spout. 
this bank is about to go bust. I'd recommend you withdraw all your deposits in it. And it does appear that this magazine, its information, a lot of it was sound in the sense that it, that his, his tip-offs were accurate. His predictions panned out. So people had to buy this thing. It was scandalous. It was libelous. It was illegal. The police were chasing around town trying to track him down so that they could put him in jail. They couldn't find him. But at the same time, people were paying good money for this thing. And it's not, it's not just the, the radical community. There are businessmen who are reading this. The guys who were being who were being uh, libeled, wanted to see what was being said about them. And they also wanted to try and get, um, get a jump on, the, uh, on their competitors. So they, they wanted to buy this thing to see whether or not they should be selling their shares. It was disgraceful, but it was indispensable. Nobody's ever been able to get to the bottom of where the information printed in hard cash came from. But it was absolute dynamite. Australia at this point in history was beset by financial crisis, and hard cash was like a lit match in a fuel tank in terms of economic instability. And that, it seems, was the point. Desmond has moved from being a relatively mainstream populist to full-blown revolutionary. He had become some sort of a wacky anti-political anarchist. In this way, he was actually part of a current of thought that was growing in influence at that time. It was called syndicalism. It was the idea that the labour movement through organisations like unions could, if it worked together, assemble enough power to actually overthrow the capitalist system and build a workers' state without going through the tedious business of um, getting elected and winning power through the ballot box. He had rejected that possibility. But one thing he still kept to, it seems to me, is this admiration for a strong, absolutely unstoppable figure who who crashed through any barriers of morality or decency or or, um, or common sense to just go out and get what he wanted. Yeah, bomb-throwing anarchists, that kind of mm. thing. And I think we maybe forget how big of a deal bomb-throwing anarchists were at the time. I mean, they were, you know, the equivalent of ISIS today. We would, Everyone was terrified they'd be they have were. dynamite chucked at them in the street. Absolutely. The, the, this was starting to happen, particularly in Europe. And, um, even in Australia, where um, in Sydney, where various... Um, Warehouses and so on were burnt down um, mysteriously. He aligned himself with that extreme element of the left labour movement. For all his fanaticism, Desmond seems to inspire a lot of loyalty. The New Zealand newspapers got wind of Desmond's actions in Australia and printed articles reviving the stories of his dodgy dealings in New Zealand. So one of Desmond's mates, Henry Lawson, the famous Aussie bush poet, wrote this in response. They are stoning Arthur Desmond, and of course it's understood by the people of New Zealand that he isn't any good. He's plagiarist, they tell us, and a scamp. But after all, he's fighting pretty plucky with his back against the wall. They are damning Arthur Desmond for the battle that he fought, for his awful crime in saying what so many people thought. He was driven from his country, but I like to see fair play and to slander absent brothers. Well, it ain't New Zealand's way. All this loyalty comes in handy because the Australian police weren't giving up their efforts to track down Desmond and the other people behind hard cash. They tried to find the editor and the author. They tried to find Desmond himself. He, Of course, he didn't use his own name in the paper. They couldn't catch up with him. So they were reduced to uh, imprisoning the retailers who sold the, the, the paper. And these included his own landlord, the man who sort of looked after him, who was his kind of host and patron in, in Sydney, 
This guy faced jail time unless he would say where the editor of Hard Cash could be found. He refused to say, and they put him in jail. That's a lot of loyalty to show to a, a guy you know you haven't known for very long, but that is what happened, and Desmond let it happen. He didn't put his hand up and say, don't put him in jail, I'm the one you're looking for. Let that poor man go. <laughs> he didn't. He simply, let, he simply let the guy go to jail. Desmond leaves town while the heat dies down. He gets a job working for the campaign of an Australian Labour candidate in the rural New South Wales electorate. He apparently wandered all over the state painting vote Labour on every fence, rock and tree. And that was a, uh, a source of income for him for a while, travelling around the country in a horse and cart with a tent. But while he was doing that, he received word from his mates in the city that the police were on his tail, that his illegal activities were about to catch up with him, and he hightailed it yet again from Australia. Desmond sets sail. He arrives in the United States and seems to settle in Chicago. But from here on, his story gets very murky. He allowed rumours about himself to, to flourish unchecked. So when people um, said, oh, you know, I understand that he's a genius with a PhD, um, he, would, he would smile modestly and not put them straight. He wrote books and other things under a variety of false names. He even republished the same works more than once under different titles. It gets very hard to follow his trail because there's so much rubbish and uh, illusion associated with it. One of those books Desmond publishes under a false name while he's in the USA is the one we started this episode talking about. Might is Right, written under the dramatic pen name of Ragnar Redbeard. It's impossible to get a grasp of what this book is like without reading a bit of it. Brace yourself. On war, he writes... The natural world is a world of war. The natural man is a warrior. The natural law is tooth and claw. All else is error. On Jesus Christ. The prophet of unreason, the preacher of rabble rabies. All that is innovating and destructive of manhood, he glorifies. All that is self-reliant and heroic, he denounces. On the American Declaration of Independence. It's ethical and most of its political conclusions are shams, deceptions and cold-blooded dishonesties. Incandescent lies. On women. Women and children belong to man, who must hunt for them as well as for himself. He is their lord and master, in theory and in fact. And on race. The African, Mongolian, Semite or Negro breeds are all fundamentally different in formation, constituents and character from men of Aryan descent. Some men are born better, born nobler, born braver than others. Yeah. Wow, what a terrible book. Uh, <laughs> as far as I can see, it's a kind of compendium of just about everything he'd ever written previously. And it's also a distillation of this philosophy that he developed. There's no morality beyond absolute selfishness. You go out and grab what you want. Women, power, money. The best man is the strongest and most ruthless and most determined the funny thing is he wasn't really like that himself, but that's clearly what he wanted to be like. Mm. He, he wanted to have much more power, much more wealth, much more success than he really did. Might is right is the purest expression of his desire for 
world domination. And really, he didn't want anything less. And yet, in spite or more likely because of the horrible stuff in it, Mitre's Right might be the most widely read and influential book ever written by a New Zealander. It's hardly ever been out of print since it was first published in the 1890s. It was beloved by some in the libertarian movement of the 1970s as a tribute to individualism. It was plagiarised in the 1960s by Satanist Anton LaVey, who used it to write the Satanic Bible. It may even have influenced some of the fascist movements of the 30s and 40s. And it's enjoying another surge of popularity right now. There were seven different editions printed in just the last 10 years, including translations in three different languages. If you go on the internet, you'll find people writing long essays about Mitre's right on message boards or even turning it into songs like this death metal track I found on YouTube. Arthur Desmond's ideas have remained resonant. And Mark Darby, for one, sees a lot of parallels between him and US President Donald Trump. That's what's going to happen. We better get really tough, really smart, really vigilant, or we're going to have a problem. We better stop playing games, believe me. We better stop playing games. If we are attacked, somebody attacks us, wouldn't you rather have Trump as president if we're attacked? Oh, we'll beat the shit out of them. Anybody attacks us. He sees himself as the kind of conquering hero figure that Desmond exalted in, in his work, in works like Might is Right. I, I think Trump genuinely sees himself that way, and I think that his supporters and his followers do too. They excuse his excesses. They excuse his obvious failings, his personal and moral failings. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I was looking at some Trump, pro-Trump message boards sort of in preparation for this whole thing. And they talk about Trump as like God Emperor Trump, like that, <laughs> that, that kind of stuff, you know, like, yeah. like obviously over-exaggerating and sort of laughing at themselves a bit while they do it. But there is that sort of undercurrent there, isn't there, that this sort of same thing that Desmond was after, someone who will just come in and just, you know, burn everything that's wrong and, and sort it all out. Yeah, who, who, who seems to be above or disdainful of conventional petty morality, of the sort of issues that uh, constrain the rest of us. He's somehow free of them. And if we follow him and if we give him our allegiance, then we'll become free of them too. It's a very disturbing, very unpleasant political philosophy. But it, it, it led to the rise to power of Mussolini, of Hitler. You know, I don't see Trump in, the, in their company exactly, but I do see a kind of continuity between them. And I do see Desmond and his work as having lent some sort of intellectual philosophical force to, to those lines of thought, yeah. As for the end of Arthur Desmond's story, it's just as mysterious as the beginning. There are at least six different accounts of his death. One said he was killed fighting alongside the Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa. Another claimed he died in Palestine while serving under General Allenby during the First World War. Probably the most likely story is also the most boring one. 
that in 1929 he died from a stroke while stacking shelves at a second-hand bookshop in Chicago. Special thanks to Mark Darby. In just a minute, we'll give you a preview of what's coming up on Black Sheep next week. But first, I'm joined by my good friend and co-worker, Megan Whelan, who you may recognise from occasional voice acting, including some screaming. Isn't that where I scream? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you didn't actually get to scream in the last one, did you? Oh, no, I'm very anyway. Sad. Megan's here to tell us a little bit about her podcast, which is coming up, which people who like Black Sheep might also like. It's called Great Ideas. Yeah, so Great Ideas is a panel discussion. Last season was with Victoria University. This season is with AUT. Um, and this time we're discussing the future of things. So the future of leisure is our first episode. We spent a lot of time talking about when the last time people were bored was. I get bored quite often. I was bored this weekend. Yeah, and what did you do about it? Nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> is that not the way you need to well, deal with it? <laughs> so what we discussed a lot is that a lot of the things we, we do and have now are about stopping us from being bored. So you, you might play a game on your cell phone or you might watch something on TV or you might do any of these things. And actually being bored is really good for you because it's where creativity comes from a lot of the time. And so we talk in, in Great Ideas about what that might mean for the future if we are never bored anymore. That's really cool and interesting. Mm. Anyway, you can find... Great ideas, the same place you can find Black Sheep, which is pretty much everywhere. iTunes on RNZ series and podcast page um, or on RNZ's brand new app, which is really fantastic. So pretty. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Next time on Black Sheep. It's got to be close to the most famous or infamous quotation from our legal history now. And I think in terms of Prendergast's reputation, he's been unfortunate that it happened to be about what has now become confirmed as our founding document from all, uh, pretty much all New Zealanders. He really is as close as we've got probably to a legal villain. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. This episode was engineered by Phil Benge. Our voice actors were James Kane and Adam McCauley. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.